With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. All right. Uh, once again, it's Mike, uh, and it's old dystopia, uh, excuse me, old religion dystopia, knowing versus belief, and uh, this is part two, or take two, of a conversation with Paul Nation and his... Uh, is, but we're talking about his interest, interesting life. Um, once again, uh, the com is where you can find information about Paul and his project. And so indavabird.com. Uh, indavabird is one word, no space. Anyways, uh, Paul, thank you for calling back, and hopefully we have a better connection. <laughs> I sure hope we do. I enjoyed this subject, so. I'm always happy to talk about it. Yes. Um, well, let's see. Where, where, there's so many. There's just a few questions. Um, well, first of all, uh, Papua New Guinea. Uh, you ever been to East Timor? No, I never have made that area. Uh, just, just my my. Papua New Guinea. When I lived in England, I uh, I met my ex-wife there in England, and. Uh, She's half East Timorese and half Portuguese. Her father was a uh, Portuguese soldier, and they got out right before, um, well, that all that debacle oh. there. Yeah, and you know, then the uh, Indonesia taken over. So, uh, how how is that you know, as far as Papua New Guinea goes? As far as um, uh, stability and, um, uh, I guess you know, know that the. the What's going on is like the the Muslim government that's, and uh, that archipelago region. I know there's a a lot of uh, certain areas, a lot of unrust. Yes, uh, basically though the mainland and everything is still uh, fairly safe. I mean, it depends on where you go. The cities there are the ones that have gotten uh, captured up in this uh, clash of cultures, you want to say, so to speak, where they have a lot of un educated, unemployed people who are coming straight from the jungle, and uh, they take to being what they call rascals, which is just steal for a living, and uh, that's the big thing. You can't leave your car alone outside of a store or anything else, and any type of store or place you go in business, there's always these security guards on every aisle basically watching the people, and it's uh, sort of intimidating at times when you see so much security everywhere. Uh, they're not armed security, they're just uh, uniform security most of the time. But uh, once you get out of the, the jungle, basically, I have not had any problems at, at all back in the villages and such. And so I feel quite secure back there. But uh, oh basically, you're the white skin in a 100-mile radius, and so it's a circus environment all the time. So. Right. It's unique in that area. Well, you know, it's, you can find that in uh, other areas as well. Uh, ironically, North London is that way. I remember when I was living in London, there's a Tottenham, 
was uh, at the time when I was living there. We're now we're talking way back in the late '80s, early '90s. Uh, uh, although you, in particular, if you're a white American, <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know, why? There's all the um, oh, the fables about and uh, of what American is. You know that they, we all walk on golden paved roads and. You know that kind of thing. <laughs> well, just to give you one little incident that I've had happen several times, actually, now is um, I'm about six foot tall, well over 200, say 250 pounds when I'm over there. So I'm a fairly big guy showing up, and I'll have these young kids below the age of five be be brought to me by their older siblings. Young kids are screaming their heads off. I mean, their eyes are bulging, and their voices are just ear-shattering screams of terror. And the first time it happened, it was so uncomfortable that we actually left the little village and went on down the path because we just needed to get away from this scene. And when we got oh, a couple hundred yards down the jungle path, we asked our translator guide uh, what was going on back there because nobody else was, was uh, uneasy or anything. It was just this young boy that was being brought up to us by his older sister. And our guy said, well, out here in the, the bush, they have a story that if you don't obey me, I'm going to feed you to the white man. Well, here I am. I'm the first white man this kid's ever seen. And he knew for certain I was going to eat him. And so the terror in his eyes was just well illustrated by his screams as well. So when I have that happen several other times, I tell him, no, take the kid back, get him away. I'm not going to be here. Once I'm settling in the village for an hour or so, the child will come up and we'll be friendly and everything. But they really know that I'm there to eat them at first. <laughs> so you just have to sit back and chuckle and say, well, there's another one that's been told the story all his life. Yeah, well, you know, uh, well, you're kind of a grizzly, rough-looking fellow to begin with, huh? You still sporting that beard? <laughs> no, basically that's just my uh, project beard, you know, when I get there, hard to shave. And take care of it. So I take it out there, and, uh, and they must they must find that fascinating. How does that how does that white guy grow that beard so fast? Huh? Right. <laughs> it doesn't take long for me anyway. So yeah, well, my mind's starting to get old. Uh, you know, salt and pepper looking myself. So I, I'm afraid it, now since it's been what since old seven since I've been back, it's probably be pure gray right now. <laughs> so you've been there. You, you've been there to Papua New Guinea four times now, which is interesting. And it's and um, so many questions to ask. Well, one of the things that, that I wanted to bring up is you brought up the, the mention of uh, Bigfoot, and and you know uh, cultures. It's very important. I've discovered it's one of the things I've been doing research is really uh, delving heavy in this. Project. My, my old called series was nothing but the truth, and we did over uh, a thousand recordings and interviews. So I just started a new one uh, back at, and uh, in February with the uh, old religion dystopia, knowing versus belief, and that's one of the things I want. I'm delving into is, um, in fact, uh, just a reminder, folks, uh, folks, uh, uh, Wednesday, M.K. Davis and I will be. Uh, doing uh, another part of our series, so don't forget about that. Um, uh, 
Yeah. So the big cults, Bigfoot culture, I, you know, the, the subculture that, um, that I had no idea how many groups there are, how many people are evolved from uh, the East coast all the way to the West coast. Every single state has all these sorts of, um, you know, organizations, um, I'm talking to people that are swearing and they're seeing it. I've never seen it. I, I, I live on the border of Michigan and Ohio right. and a place called Sylvania. I don't mind saying it because um, I, I plan that nobody uh, – well, this is men in black. And, and out of that, I don't see anybody wanting to come talk to me about anything. So, um, uh, But, the, you know, uh, all these folks, you know, especially uh, – uh, Going from basically what I see is a lot of the rural communities, in particular, of this culture of the Bigfoot. So now you're down translating it to over to where you're at with the Indava bird. It's many names, and it seems to me with all its many micro cult or cultures and communities and villages and all that, that this is a universal. Um, well, cryptoid or cryptoid, I don't know. Yeah. And story, story, story. So um, tell us more about the, the universal story. Because, you know, one of the things I've been discovering is that in, it seems to be, we think it's bad here in the United States and, um, or United States of America. And, uh, but, yeah, it's superstition and um, is just part of the human experience, isn't it? Well, Interesting you said that. Just last night I got an email about some, some missionaries down in Peru of all places. And I'll just read you about four lines out of this email real quick. Uh, and it's really interesting because 20 years ago, a giant featherless bird with an elongated head and beak full of teeth would dig up bodies of the dead to devour the remains. The animal would spit fire, which was either a hot gas flame or an acid-like substance that was extremely painful if contact was made to the skin. The village hunters finally went then to the town, purchased shotguns, tracked the giant flying monster to its lair in a cave. They waited until the animal exited the cave, then shot it down, killing it. They then vacated the area and did not return, thinking it would be bad luck to do so. They declined John's request to be taken to the area to see if any remains, such as bones or skulls, might still be present. You know, that was only 20 years ago, this missionary is saying. So, uh-huh. And, I mean, that is almost exact description of what the description of the New Guineans give me. Right. The little bird with an elongated head, beak full of teeth, and it would dig up bodies. And so we have basically have uh, created this uh, description of our Indaba bird or the Ropen is a scavenger most of the time. It's a opportunity eater, basically. If it's a dead carcass, it'll eat it, but it also will fish, and it will pick up clams and things of that nature over in New Guinea. But uh, uh-huh. so I'm halfway around the world now in, in Peru, and hearing about this that happened in the late 80s, early 90s. You know, uh-huh. And that's just recent in the time frame. Uh, I can go back to 1876 with my sightings in Papua New Guinea, which is the first Written, written uh, report from some explorers that were that first saw it and took a shot at this large bird it was 1876, and so you know I've been able to document some sightings 
something that's extremely large. And by large, I'm talking about a 30-foot wingspan, okay? Right, right. I talked about an 18-foot wingspan or 15-foot wingspan, which would still be large. But this one, and what we do take also is some flash pictures or silhouettes of um, beaks, of wings, shapes of other birds outside of uh, New Guinea that uh, like the American eagle or some other birds that we know, and then we'll throw in the prehistoric uh, silhouettes of the birds we know of. And uh, they'll go to the prehistoric silhouettes 80% of the time. 100% of the time, they'll go to the prehistoric silhouettes. 80% of the times they will actually go to the Pilosus sortis silhouette, which is uh-huh. so amazing because that's a very distinct wing shape, head shape that we know from the fossil record. Uh, however, you know, from the fossil record, we don't know what uh, muscle structure is going to the bones as well. So we have to take some artistic license to put bones and muscles and skin together to come up with what it actually looks like. So, so uh-huh. there's still some coincidental evidence is what we get that uh, what we well, the wing shape is very fascinating. It's like uh, basically each wing is about the shape of what I would call uh, a crescent moon type shape, if you will, boomerang type. Very yeah. different. Yeah. Uh, the description they call it is a shark shark fin shape. You know. Yeah, there's yeah. another way you could look at it. Yeah. yeah, that's what they'll talk about a lot of times. Is, uh, and you wonder how the consistency will go from siding to siding to siding. And... Uh, because once I'm in Papua New Guinea, there's 820, right now, 820 some odd documented different languages on that tiny island. Uh huh. As big as the state of Texas. Now, of those 800 languages, I can actually go with one tribal group. They can send me people from their village. We'll cross a mountain ridge, and that group cannot talk to the people on the other side of this mountain ridge. Now, they have overcome that uh, problem by having a, a national trade language of uh, Tokpishan, which uh, is the trade language, but uh, English, fortunately, is the governmental language of the nation now, so whenever I go into a village, if I find the head magistrate or a a teacher of the the local school, they will speak a type of English. Usually it's a broken British-type English or Australian-type English, but I can communicate with at least a couple people in any village I go to because of the the national governmental language is English. All right. Now, when I said about the superstition, I'm not uh, being disrespectful to your project or people in general. They're usually with myth, with myth and superstition, there is a, some nuggets of truth is just being misguided <laughs> as far as the attentions go to what, what or what our attention should be on. Um, and it's, 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 the interesting thing is a, a friend of mine. I guess an ex-girlfriend that he had, or, um, if I'm not mistaken, she was she was a teacher, a volunteer teacher. She went there uh, for several years, um, and I guess you know it's, there is that you know the whole notion of uh, the the um, headhunter type of uh, culture, but it's really not that as rampant as the you know Western media wants to make it out to be. I'm not saying there it's not tribes or cultures out there that. Um, don't practice a form of cannibalism or actual cannibalism, but the mass majority of people are just like us or just, you know, trying to get along, get get on with life, you know what I mean? Right, yeah. Although, 
although they they seem to be more connected to um, the Earth than we are. Would I be correct with that? Uh, yeah, it's called subsistence farming. You know, they just allow, rely on the jungle to bring them everything they need, which is pretty convenient. They live in a disposable society, which would blow me away because they don't have anything that lasts long at all, so everything they use is disposable, <laughs> even their uh-huh. huts. They'll build a new hut every five years just because the hut decomposes and returns back into the jungle, basically. I mean, yeah. Uh, they get over 500 inches of rain a year. That's just the areas I'm in. Uh, so everything uh, is basically rotting and decomposing as soon as you cut it out of the jungle and bring it there. So uh, some of the wealthy ones will put a metal roof on top of the hut, and the huts will last some time longer. But as a general rule of thumb, they're moving and rebuilding every three, four, five years. I mean, in the time frame of I'm gone there, I've seen villages disappear and move miles down the trail because it was closer to the ferry boat coming in for one thing right you know just because business has changed they were getting into growing coffee beans at the time and so this was a better area to grow their coffee trees underneath banana bushes or shade and so they just abandoned the old village site and went and within bang within two months everybody had their own hut built up the grounds was smooth back down to packed earth and they had their new village called it the same name but it was three miles away <laughs> so <from> the old <laughs> and, and for, for those that will listen to this you know they'll be like, why don't you guys just get onto this bird uh, uh, that's where they're probably going to be most interested in but I really think you gotta you gotta build a, a foundation especially of a cultural and and also the fact that just what, what you just brought up is one of the things that, uh, well, you know, anthropologists and archaeologists have had to deal with, um, and paleontologists, not all the other ontologists out there as far as dating history and time and past, is the fact that the vast majority of all that's ever been in this, in our realm of existence is uh, just what you described um, has not lasted very long. It's all been basically exposed and uh and not lasting very long at all and being moved and so you know we were talking about the the conditions for preserving bones uh in the history of most of our well what we call our history is just that it doesn't last long and is in the distant past you know so for the preservation of bones and villages and structures and all that you know if you got uh you know, wooded areas or any type of precipitation, any type of organic material growing, all that kind of stuff, you're, it's just not going to last. Right. Yeah. If the rain didn't wash it away, the beetles will eat it. Um, you know, it just this decomposes extremely fast there. Uh, very rough environment for the human body as well. I mean, people take a toll. I've gotten malaria before and survived that. up out of my skin and it's just and I'm only there for a month or two at a time and I'm not living there full time like the people the nationals are uh, uh-huh. I go to one village where uh, the guy that lets me use his um, his garden spot uh, as an observation because the trees are cut down I can see for many miles his dad was killed 
killed and eaten by the tribe in 1960s. They were still cannibals up to 1960 in this area that I was at. But an amazing thing that basically helped kill out cannibalism is mad cow disease. Huh. Well, mad cow disease is basically spread by a contaminated brain and uh, process when they would take out everything. And so when the villagers of the Nationals would eat the brain of their fallen, which is what they would do a lot of times when they attack each village, you'd eat the brain of your enemy, well, that was killing both of the tribes out. And so besides the government outlawing it, a lot of it took its way naturally in that uh, the disease was wiping out those cultural hey, tribal areas that would do the cannibalism. You don't see, there's, I hear a few cases rare cannibalism, but as a whole, there's not many tribes practicing the uh, practice of cannibalism anymore, because they found out it's unhealthy. <laughs> and that's funny, you know, they have a lot of, like, uh, little bit, little connections. You know, when I was in England, uh, the mad cow disease was going on, and so I'm not allowed to, to donate blood, just because I live there. Man, who knows? Maybe, maybe I'm a bit of a mad cow myself. I have no idea. Uh, but yeah, it, 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 you know, the, the fascinating thing that you, the other thing too is you know you're talking about that condition and how you know we as human beings really, it's, it, in a lot of ways, don't seem like we're really we're, we're really meant to be here to begin with. Uh, one of my well, first of all, my father got malaria when he was in the Korean War, so I know exactly what that was like. You know, he was a, he joined he went to the, the, the military the army because he wanted to play football. He was the second all state tail back in Ohio in 1950, and then a couple of years later, the Korean War started, and he went over there and ended up getting malaria, and pretty much was the end of a lot of things. Uh, another guy just like yourself who worked. Uh, like your father, um, worked forty-five years the same place. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> one of the things I, one of my experience experiments last year. You know, you hear all these, you know, the. Well, if you want to call them tree huggers or whatever, I know it doesn't really matter. Um, this whole thing about you know, hey, if you walk around barefoot, so you know it's good for you, and uh, and you know, as far as uh. Health-wise and all that, you hear all this stuff uh, on the internet and all that. So, I figured, you know, I would experiment for the summer. I have uh, some wildflower gardens. Yeah, I plant like uh, native wildflowers from the southwest United States, <clears throat> and it's good for the bees and all that kind of stuff. Yep. And so, I decided to do it barefoot. I tell you what, I got the biggest calluses and I have been suffered the, the all winter they just uh, peeling off and, you know if you're going to go barefoot you better stay going barefoot because I'm telling you three months of it you know and then right. stopping oh my gosh I've had nothing but foot problems ever since so first time you know <laughs> I've tried it you know tell me that they put the bottoms of the people's feet over an inch deep before they hit muscle. There's there over an inch of calluses on those feet. Those people can just walk over anything and everything without any problems. I mean, but I also found out that when you walk in mud on a slippery mountain 
forget your good mountain boots and everything else because you can sink your old toes into that mud and that'll keep you from sliding so well. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they have some very tough feet. Well, like you say, though, they're, they've got 30, 40 years of walking barefoot. So, Well, that's not, this leads to my next question. So now we have this culture about this giant bird, um, reptilian-type bird, um, that it's not just their culture, but it's many different cultures. Just, um, I you know I, I'm not. I was in the environmental field. I'm with this blah blah. You know, college and university. For it was part of the the official meme. You know that will push on a lot of folks in my generation to get a job and save the environment type of thing, which was a you know. Good, good, wonderful scam in itself. Uh, uh, a lot of people made a lot of money, except me. Um, and most of the people that I knew that had PhDs in the hard sciences, like geology or uh, marine biology and all that kind of stuff. So, um, not saying folks, folks shouldn't do that, but you should just be beware. Uh, we don't live in a culture, but you know, it's really about doing what's right. <laughs> It's more about the money and all that kind of thing. But in their culture, and many of these cultures, they're much more connected to um, um, the earth and more connected to what's around them. And, and they see things that you and the average guy um, in Western civilization is never going to see a witness. When I say average guy, that's, you know, city dwellers, you know, suburbanites and city dwellers, you know, that. Basically, we all we stare at boxes, work in boxes, live in boxes, shop in boxes. We're never, you know, the closest thing to nature that we're ever going to see is going to, you know, the park and going for a power walk, which is none of that is conducive to actually seeing uh, any kind of wildlife. So and these folks have been seeing things and they've had this tradition for a long time. So that means, obviously, and although there might be nefarious motives in our own society as far as promoting it, in their society, um, although there is the element of kind of helping to maintain folks in the village by always there's a boogeyman in the wood, you know, man in the woods type of thing, stay away from him. But I don't, I don't know if this is the same case for say, although if it does have any. Um, cultural relevance as far as trying to maintain order would you know at nighttime trying to keep people from you know from messing around at night i guess but i can't outside of that i don't know what the the advantage would be overall except for uh, it'd be a good story <laughs> so but the problem is that this, the story goes everywhere so it's universal it's kind of like bigfoot so um what are these things that we're talking about and they're very important issues you know, they may be distractions of other issues. They still, you know, we're we've been designed. The creator designed us to be uh, to be creators and to be explorers and to be adventurers and to discover all that is. So, cool. Kudos on you. Tell us about this. What is this creature overall? Tell us more. Like uh, the bioluminescence, because that reminds me of something like lightning bugs, which you're talking about. And uh, yeah, in fact, and, uh, we did have a. On occurrence on the first trip in 1994, uh, we thought we'd actually seen something down the beach a ways, probably 100 yards away, was a bluish-type globe, a 
on, turning off, turning on, turning off. And there's not much electricity on this island unless it's power generators that are portable, little Yamaha-type generators. So we walk down the beach, and sure enough, we find about a million fireflies all hanging together. I don't know if it's a mating ritual or what, but they were about the size of a basketball, and everybody was pulsing together in unison. And so that was, you know, easily explained. Well, it was just an experience that, hey, I don't know if any many people will ever see that again. But uh, there was this bluish type of firefly. So uh, we did see that. But when we first heard about the bioluminescence, we we sort of kicked it away and said, ah, that's not possible. That's that's just part of the the fairy tale that this creature has developed. And so we're not going to be looking for anything that glows. We want to find a living, flying, we thought it was more of a tronodon at the time. Now I think it's more of a Ramparinkus uh, in the fossil record. If you look for Ramparinkus uh, shape. Uh, so, but as we kept going from village to village, from language group to language group, one of the consistencies of the description was this glow, this bioluminescence. Now we do find out that it glows three different colors. Uh, there's a whitish color like a Coleman lantern, if you ever pump up a Coleman lantern. There's a yellowish color like a uh, kerosene lantern, if you ever you know, have a, just a flame type kerosene lantern. And then there's a red glow like a, uh, they cook with hot rocks. And when you see their rocks get red hot, you understand what they're talking about with that reddish glow. So the, the ones I've seen were white, and then the ones I actually got on video were the yellowish ones which on video they show up as white, but uh, when I saw them with the bare naked eye, they were a yellowish glow. So I know now that the descriptions that the natives had given me for several years ahead of time was very accurate. So I don't know if this glow is based upon sex of the, of the uh, animal or maybe there's a few different species of it or maybe it's for different One's a territorial glow, one's an aggressive glow, I don't know, one's a honey glow, I don't know. I mean, that's some more research that has to be done on this uh, bioluminescence of this. Well, that's very interesting. You know, uh, you know, if they're nocturnal creatures, uh, you know, let's face it, we're, we're day creatures, right? We function from uh, dusk to dawn, right, or dawn to dusk, or whatever, dawn to dusk to dawn. And then there's a whole, there's like two worlds, you know, the old yin-yang thing, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, what are we, uh, it makes, it makes sense to me. And, you know, although there's been technology for quite a while now for, um, that we've had, in fact, today, if you want to eat, there's companies and one in particular that I know of in Japan where you can buy, um, uh, uh, a drone that's basically a ball that you can have it bounce around and float near it in the air on the house and everything. We know that uh, we've had military, you know, whether well, yeah, military and private corp- corporations that have had drone technology for quite a while, a lot longer than anybody realizes, and that, uh, that you know, but we're now, um, but this is, uh, it makes sense to me that that you know a lot of this people are maybe seeing with. Uh, uh, infrared and all that. Now that the technology you have now, that a lot of people are seeing things up in the sky moving around. That some of that could actually be these these critters, and wherever they uh, they're they're hanging out, you know, during the day, um, uh, 
it's not that difficult for uh, an intelligent creature to evade uh, man. I mean, you hear all the time the false narrative that the world's overpopulated, but it's it's actually not. In the United States, apparently, um, at least one-fourth of it still hasn't been, you know, on the ground, foot, foot you know, uh, been uh, surveyed properly. And although we have test, you know, forms of satellites and all that, that yeah, give us a uh, uh, area views of uh, the the terrain. That doesn't mean that we know that much. I mean, look at the billy goat or the billy ape. That uh, they took them a year. Um, it, uh, I guess it was uh, uh, at least one team. I've heard up to four teams. It took a year for them just to get a picture of one. And I don't know if you heard much about the billy ape in Africa, but um. Yeah, you know, it's kind of like their version of maybe what our version of uh, could possibly be what people were thinking is uh, one of the forms of quote-unquote Bigfoot. So, yeah, why not? Why couldn't it be? You know? Yeah, exactly, because, you know, we have the cougar, uh, American mountain lion, lives in California. And California is very popular, but how many people living in California have ever, ever seen a mountain lion in the wild? Very few people. But yet we get them people killed by them occasionally as jogging down a jogging trail or whatever so and yet we know that they're there but uh, they basically avoid uh, human contact as much as possible so uh, sure it's pretty much of a nocturnal type animal yet you can still see them time, so there's a lot of that that's out there uh, and what's well, my favorite ex- uh, my favorite example paul is uh the flying squirrel where I live, uh, they, we have flying squirrels, and uh, and first of all, ninety ninety nine point probably at least ninety nine percent of the, the the populace of the United States doesn't even know that we have a flying squirrel. Of those that live in a region where there are flying squirrels, ninety nine point whatever have never even seen one. And I spend time myself searching for it at night, and uh, always give the example that you know, how did I end up. Uh, Seeing it finally, well, I was standing on my mom's uh, when I was over her house uh, in her um, her back porch, and I looked up, and lo and behold, there's a flying squirrel. <laughs> That's the way it works, isn't it, Paul? <laughs> Just, uh, opportunity, yeah, opportunity time to see it. Exactly right. That's how afraid it's going to be. Somebody's going to actually just be accidentally have a camera available and accidentally be right place at the right time and be able to take a good picture. Uh, but still, I think it's important to have people out there that are actually looking for it. But research is a black hole. You know, I've spent tons of money and not gotten anything. I'll go over there sometimes and just spend hour after hour. Very boring work sitting up there by myself on the mountainside of, of this jungle area looking at many hours of nothing, blackness, <laughs> you know, more blackness, because there's no artificial lights in these areas. Uh, the last spot I went to research was up at 8,000 foot in a cloud forest. And so even the fires that the villagers would build were inside their huts. And they didn't put fires outside their huts. So, you know, it's just, like I say, many hours of boredom. Just sitting there looking and thinking, okay. Uh, I went back to the same spot that I had videotaped my bioluminescence uh, for and spent another three weeks there and absolutely saw nothing the last time I was there. So did they migrate? Did they find another place to go? Uh, what were the conditions that caused them to leave? Uh, you know, here again, going there every four or five.
project and you know, to find some answers. And, but it's, there's so many questions out there that uh, create so much more uh, excitement than this uh, Indaba bird that uh, funding is just rare. <laughs> sure. Well, you know, it's, it's uh, interesting, too, um, <clears throat> this creature that uh, people are seeing, and if you could see it one, one, you know, part of the, the, the world and then next hearing reports in South America, North America, uh, you know, Papua New Guinea, Africa. So, and we're talking about a large predator. Um, it would be very logical that it probably, you know, wherever the food source would be for them, that's where they're going to congregate. Right. Um, just like whales type of thing. Right. You know, so uh, have you had a chance to do much of, like, grafting it, uh, putting, you know, charting where the all these locations are and maybe kind of figuring out maybe uh, where they might be uh, at a certain time of the year? No, because I haven't had enough sightings um, to really document that. A lot of the sightings are, uh, what I want to say, older sightings. It seems like they had a lot of them back in the 60s and 70s. When I talk to the younger people nowadays in the villages, many of them have never seen anything. They've heard about it. Uh, a lot of times they'll have to get the older people who will say, yeah, I haven't seen anything in 20 or 30 years, you know. So uh, is that because of the encroachment of the human race in some of these areas? Or is it like anything that's uh, aggressive, the humans will go ahead and get band together and and kill it out because it attacks their young. I've had stories of it reaching out and picking up young children and taking off, sort of like the American Thunderbird. In uh-huh. uh, this, this same thing, uh, up to the 70s, I think the last one I could, really the latest one was a seven-year-old boy that they reached down and picked up the boy and took him off and dropped him about a mile away. And the child was dead when they got to him uh, because of the fall. That was back in the 70s again. I don't know. Again, there's a language problem, and then there's a translation problem uh, that I have to sift all the information through before I think it's viable. I mean, I've heard so many wild stories that I think are absolutely fairy tales, and they're, they're second, third, fourth person told. So I think they, being from Texas, we tell tall tales. Well, some of these tales I can't out to. <laughs> Uh, so I know that people have exaggerated the, the situation, so I don't think those are good uh, descriptions of the actual creature that I'm looking for, so I'll sift that through. So It'd be nice to have that uh, ability, but uh, right now I don't have enough information to go. We started on an island of Humboy outside of Papua New Guinea, and I'm back onto the mainland now. I think uh back to, to, to the mainland more more the island of Unboy. However, as we speak, there is a national going from Port Moresby up to the island of Unboy to do some more research because when I first went to the island of Unboy in 94, the Malaysian people uh, were in there cutting timber off the island. Well, that's been, what, 20, 20 years ago? Well, now they're back cutting timber again, and uh, one of the uh, timber crews chainsaw actually spooked up one from its lair sleeping at night so they did have a 
reported sighting of the actual roping again here several months ago on the island of Boy in daylight. So that got Rex, his name is Rex, all encouraged to go back to uh, Umboys. So since he's local, it's much more cheaper for him to travel because he's already there. So we're hoping that he can maybe give us some more heads up at actual locations as he's going there. So that's an exciting action that's going on as we speak. He's not yet on the island. He's still in trans, what do I call it, transport mode. Uh, it takes you a long time to get anywhere in New Guinea. There's just not good roads for one thing. And then you take any type of uh, ferry boats. It took us 17 hours of a ferry boat ride just to go from a bay out to the island of Umboy. Traveling like three miles an hour or four miles an hour with this old ferry boat. Huh. But I think they're progressing. This might be slow, but, uh, you know, we haven't given up the hunt for certain and uh, hope to be able to return someday. <laughs> ah, right. Keep planning on it. About well, it. you know, uh, this might be uh, way off the mark here. I don't know, but uh, you said like back in the 70s there was uh, some sightings and uh, that's about the date you said was 76 and at the same time there in East Timor where they're having the, um, uh, you know, the coup there and they're and the, you know, a f- one fourth of the population was slaughtered, um, and uh, other places like that too. So I just wonder, also, because these things are large predators, is there any kind of correlations where uh, you have any kind of uh, uh, major war, major death, and you have a lot of corpses and bodies? I know it sounds very morbid, and, you know, but uh, uh, you know, the sighting that got us started on the hunt was was done in 1944 at the end of World War II. Uh, Dwayne Hodgkins actually gave us the first sighting, saw it uh, in August of 1944, and I hadn't thought about it being a good feeding ground for it. I know it sounds morbid, and it's the last thing you want to think about, but, you know, you know these creatures that they you know they're still existing have to be uh, opportunistic, and because right. um, they got you know we're talking a huge creature that needs a, a whole lot of calories <laughs> just yeah, to fly this you know and uh, yeah but the bioluminescence which um, really isn't that far fetched. It really is. I mean, we got the deep sea creatures that are doing that. We got the bugs all around us that are doing that. Um, they've been able to actually, with gene manipulation, actually have uh, bioluminescent cats. Um, you know, and then we're talking about, you know, an awful lot of this uh, world that we live in, we still don't fully know as much as we like to think we do. Um, for many different reasons, you know, um, you know. Right, yeah. Um, well, let's say this critter will go ahead and flash to uh, intimidate uh, hunting parties. Uh, it'll really brighten up an area. Now, when I'm talking about bright, I mean, I didn't know. How do you describe brightness to somebody? Uh, you know, I heard they talk of big light, bright light, big light, big light for years. And uh, I tell you, this thing is bright. I mean, it would be as bright as somebody taking a, a fluorescent lantern for a uh, uh, camping site. Uh-huh. It's not an intensity bright like an LED or anything. It's more of a glowing light. Uh, but, I mean, it is definitely, I mean, you can see it for a mile or two away when I see them flying. I've seen them as close 
many times I didn't even try to put a camera to it because I thought there's no way this camera is going to pick up any bioluminescence. So they can generate, I don't know, several hundred candle power. I mean, it's it's quite impressive the amount of uh, bioluminescence these things can generate. Another thing that they've talked about this uh, animal can do is it uh, will hover above the water and glow, and that can be a fishing technique. And they've seen it drop down in the water and catch fish that way. And I thought, well, that makes sense. You know, as it sits there and, and flaps the wings above the water, it can uh, cause a bioluminescence. And so there's just a couple of interesting um, things with this bioluminescence that uh, no other animal has right now, uh, except maybe some of the deep-sea creatures we've seen. They'll use their little glow to, you know, talk to lure other animals in. Uh-huh. Well, you know, uh, when that, that photo that we have here of the bioluminescence on your website, it has the two dots. Now, um, yeah, I know it. Well, this, how big do you think those two dots are, first of all? Uh, are you feeling that that's like uh, the wings itself, um, uh, or is it two different critters altogether? I mean, how big How big is? do you I estimate? Well, that sounds to me like there's two, like the description of two different separate entities. So that's really exactly. promising. Right. The other thing is, um, it doesn't as far as like uh, if people talk about, uh, you know, globes and all that kind of stuff from maybe uh, swamp gas and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't sound like that at all. Uh, it sounds to me like, and if you're feeling that's, a, you know, three fourths of a mile away. Um, and if these things, you know, that's that's pretty far. <laughs> now, this, you know, it's so amazing to see the brightness of it. Because for years, you know, they, again they say big light, big light, bright light, bright. Light. Okay, what's big? What's bright? What's big? What's bright? You know, compared to what? And they couldn't tell me anything. They compared to the kerosene lantern or a Coleman lantern or the hot rocks. You know, so here again. But when I saw those two, I would say it would be like uh, taking a kerosene lantern. You know, and uh, and turn the flame up high, and uh, then walking up. You know, and when it's pitch black, I mean, you can see a a, a, a lantern a long, long ways away. You know, so uh, that's again, it's so hard to tell when the you know those distances, and so you don't want to say that it was you know three foot, four foot, six foot. I have no 
and uh, my disappointment came in that uh, I couldn't see any wing beaks. I was hoping the the, the bioluminescence would have some sort of uh, variation of intensity because the wings would maybe come over it or whatever. So I don't know. I've had people tell me that the bioluminescence comes off the chest, and then other people say, no, it's off the tail. The tail has a flange on the end of it, and that's what glows. So until I get some more experience in it. I don't know. I was hoping that I could actually maybe see some morphology of the creature based on its own bioluminescence, but uh, all I could visually see, even with the naked eye, was just a round bioluminescence as it uh, moved through the air. And I've seen it probably six, eight times. I only took a chance photographing it at one time, but uh, I've seen it flying or moving silently through the air. There's no uh, no locomotion sounds to it. And again, I wouldn't expect to hear any wing beat as, because most of the time it's half mile, a quarter mile away. Uh, so so there's just, you know, I, I, I'd love to get there and see it again and get closer to it and find it, but uh, it just hasn't been possible lately. So I'm excited to continue on and hear maybe what Rex can find out and, and fill in some more Length that we've had with all this, and see what causes it. Well, here's a, a question. It might seem uh, a little, well, well, it's a, it is a kind of an important question in this these type of adventures is the, to um, be open-minded, I guess, enough to the idea that maybe what you're looking for is not what you what you're seeing is not what you 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 were looking for. That it could be something, uh, you know, it could be some kind of giant insect for all we know. I mean, I agree with you on that, except that when I ask them for a description, sometimes I'll give them a sheet of paper and a pencil and say, you know, draw me what you you saw. I'm so glad you mentioned this because this is my next question. Go ahead. Yeah, so what they draw me is something off the fossil record. Uh, Now, these people in in the jungle don't have an education, you know, some of their kids are going to school, but they're not worried about, you know, ancient history, basically, you know, they're not taught paleontology, they're not taught the dinosaur record, and so how are these people that live in the jungle, you know, basically 90% of them don't speak English at all, I go through a translator, I usually take two translators, one speaks the mother tongue to talk vision, you know, speaks talk vision to English. And so there, again, I have to work through that. But when they draw out a large winged creature that has a long pointed neck, a long pointed beak with a long elongated uh, crest on its head, what does that tell you? You know, we would think, you know, pteranodon or pterodactyl is a generic for all the pterosaurs, you know? Right. Something that's very prehistoric, very uh, dinosaur-looking even though pterodactyls are not dinosaurs. I understand all that, but I'm just doing a generic uh, way of thinking for the whole thing. So, therefore, you know, and then they'll draw the tail with a flange on it. How they know that the tail in the fossil record, many of them did have flanges on the tail. The Raptorhynchus family, finally, uh, will have a diamond-shaped uh, flange on this tail. So, they come up with some of these details in these drawings. And so, I, you know, I'm open to whatever it might be. You know, like you say, it might be a huge flying creature.
chicken meal that Susan <laughs> But when I get to the ones who who I think have actually seen something, they will describe and draw what I would call a Ramparinkus type dinosaur flying pterosaur. That gives me, uh, I guess, pause to keep going. That it's not a large, you know, etymologist type uh, creature. It's going to be more of a pterosaur type creature that we're looking for, and which to me would be a little bit uh, more fun to find. <laughs> yeah, sure. And you know, they, 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 these folks don't have a dog in the fight, so that's that's it's encouraging to hear that. So that's uh, uh, yeah. they keep and they and I'm glad that you mentioned that you had them draw it because I know you're you talk about um, you know showing different images and presenting it to them, but you know. You know, there's always that power, the potential power of, of persuasion. You know, and uh, but you know, if you have them actually just draw it themselves, which shows just goes to show you whether you're educated or not, whether you uh, went to some you know Julian Julian art school or not, you're you're living out in the bush. You still have that innate ability to to draw basic the basic figure outline silhouette of uh, things creatures. And for them to do that, that means that they've had some kind of um, I uh, uh, yeah, a memory that's there, you know. And um, well, how fascinating that would be for you to find that. Uh, I really hope, um, Paul, you, you are the one, man. Wouldn't well, that be wonderful, you know? We all want to be... Uh, Maybe if it's somebody else. Frankly, I'd like it to be found so I don't look like such a fool to my relatives. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's interesting. How, what kind of response have you been getting from folks around you, especially back in the, the states? Oh, my relatives are politely, you know, they accuse me of just being a bigfoot hunter, which is okay. I mean, they, I said, yeah, but I have a lot more experiences in this life. I've enjoyed meeting the people. Uh, if you go out there, you're going to find a lot more than you ever bargained for, just in, in life experiences. You know, I've been places that, according to local Local nation, the nationals, uh, no other white man has ever been before. You know, that's just little old me out of Texas, you know. That is amazing that I have been places that no other white man on record has ever been. And uh, so it is a large planet here. Sure, we're small an area, but there again, a lot of areas that have been let to be explored and looked into. And uh, it's just extremely hard. I mean, it is hard, slow-moving. Uh, it's very hard to get food sources. They, now, they'll eat out the jungle very well, but uh, to have any type of protein to you know, gain your strength, it just saps you out uh, very quick. And so, mm. uh, it's just, uh, again, it's, it's just been a, a trip to go on. But, uh, again, it, 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 is, is your wife been able to go with you? No, and she does not want to go <laughs> I mean, you're looking at 90 degrees, 95 degrees with 100% humidity most of the time. I mean, you just learn to sweat and get used to it. But miserable nights sometimes. I've learned to take a battery-powered fan. That is my best friend. It's just stifling hot in the jungle many times. There's no breeze. sun goes down, the breeze stops, and then the mosquitoes come out. You're inside of a tent and just miserable. Yeah. I'm glad I'm only there for a month. 
<laughs> well, it's amazing that uh, you know how we, uh, although we seem not to fit in, you know, uh, how we uh, can, you know, pretty much populate just about any region, given the right resources. So, um, oh yeah, and you know, and the anthropology aspect of the whole thing is uh, is re- like you're saying, is re- rewarding in itself. It's, I think it's. You know, folks like us, you know, I think it's real important, regardless of where you come from, that you need to experience other cultures because it just, uh, they're like, that in itself is life changing events. So, oh, and yeah. you get over there, they think America is heaven. I mean, then you see these groups that say, well, America was never great. And I think you have never left America. If you. <laughs> I come back and I say, if you have indoor plumbing, if you have indoor electricity, and if you have a large dog or a pet, you are wealthy. <laughs> uh, I, mean, I mean, I've gone to places where the head magistrate, uh, he had a, a, a power generator outside, a little portable Yamaha generator, and his wife was still cooking an open fire, and the generator was just to drive his TV in his VCR, and he's watching John Wayne in the war wagon, and he was extremely <laughs> wealthy. You know, and he lived in a grass hut that had a metal roof on it, up on stilts, and everything else was just primitive. You know, and you had to go outside to go to the bathroom, and there's no running water for, well, on the whole island, there's no running water. You know, everybody had to go down and bring their water back to the river, and boil it, or whatever you want to do to it. So, good indoor plumbing. And electricity indoor, you're wealthy compared to the rest of the world. Well, that's very interesting. Hey, it would be neglectful of me not to to, to bring you back to Afghanistan and with all the uh, oh the hoopla, whether or not it's true or not. Uh, oh, about some of the this alleged interactions between. Uh, uh, us boy, our boys, and the military and the Marines, and uh, a supposed giant. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, uh-uh. you got me intrigued. What? All right, well, there's been a, a meme out there about how these guys interacted with some cave giant uh, uh, that was big and uh, got cannibal, cannibalistic, and wiped out a, a whole platoon of our guys and. Uh, they ended up finally killing it and transferring it back to uh, oh, Dayton. I don't know if it's true or not. I just wondered if you heard any of these rumors because, no, you know, know. you know, in Afghanistan there was a lot of target practice in those mountains, don't you think? Yeah, I was in the southern region of Helmand Province, which is more flat desert land. I didn't get up toward the Kush Mountains except to leave home. I'd fly out of Bagram Airport Base. I could see the Kush Mountain range from there. But... Uh, I was never in the mountains, and so that was a whole other. I was more or less desert down toward Helmand Province, which is close to Iran, and the rest of us was Iran. Uh, but no, I mean, I'm going to have to look that up. That is intriguing. I had not heard a thing about that. All right. Well, you know, for those of us who have been kind of paying attention to uh, 
the crypto cryptide world. Uh, it's uh, that's one of those things. And also the other guy, because Ellie Marzuli, you know, a lot of folks trying to connect that in to, um, for better or worse, with the Nephilim and all that kind of thing. So uh, you never know about these stories. You know, things just start spreading. One of the interesting things, too, is uh, talking about the state of Ohio. There's a company here where they're actually, as far as drone technology, they're getting extremely good at uh, um, these uh, uh, drone. Oh, that's awesome. My apologies. That's awesome, dude. Good job. Uh, yeah, uh, the uh, there's a, a company there in Ohio that's actually, uh, you know, talk about the, the generic name, in pterosaurs, uh, that they have uh, they've created a drone that looks really realistic, and they've been flying it around to see how people respond to it, and people are having reports for that. So you're gonna have to deal with that now too, my friend. <laughs> you got a lot of things going against you. So. Yeah. <laughs> except, except that where I go to, I guess nobody ever goes there. And, and when I show up, I know if there's another white guy within 20 miles of me most of the time because we create such a circus environment. We can't do anything in private. Yeah. Well, that's kind of nice, you know. You, you, at least, the, you know, when you're, when you're there, you're not a number, huh? It's nice. And, you know, it's one of those things, you know, that, that uh, their sense of the, what, what culture is and community in particular, um, you know, let's face it, we I imagine that must be a, a refreshing, although at times daunting and uh, overwhelming, just the fact that uh, people are happy to see you one way or the other, or even respond to you one way or the other, even if they're not happy and they're going to run, it's like, wow, at least somebody's recognizing I'm, a, I'm on, I'm, <laughs> you know. I'm <laughs> yeah, I'll go through villages and the old folks will, will say, master, master, master. And at first it's very uncom- uncomfortable because you're thinking they're saying master, but what they're saying is M-A-S-T-A, which is master, which is white. White man, white man, white man, you know, because compared to them, I just glow in the dark almost. I'm just as white as he can be, and, and they're just a very, very dark, dark, black-skinned people. And, and I've had them ask me, why are you so ugly? <laughs> because, you know, uh, compared to, you know, to them, I'm just the opposite, and it's very good to see. And I've got a lot of good friends among them. Yeah, very well, and it's been fun. There's a few times where the the villagers got upset because they thought I was after their god, and they did not appreciate that. And I just said time and and explained to them, no, I'm not after their god. You know, their god is safe from me. I'm after a a bird, a large winged bird. That's what I'm looking for. And uh-huh. Slowly come around, and or else they'll accuse me of hunting for gold. Diamonds. I'm a prospector because of my skin shape. Nobody else goes back there unless they're looking for valuable. I said, well, this could be valuable if we find this thing, but no, it's just a bird that you see and you have some history of that it's not known outside your, your village, basically. I have to do some education of them because they don't think of my story being true a lot of times because it's too far-fetched. Nobody want to come out there for that far and I have to be very careful of how I give out money and how I pay things and how I present myself because 
went back to one village eight years later, uh, and they still thought I was looking for diamonds on this mountain that we had gone up onto, and thought I had found some, and uh, come back for eight years. So why didn't I come back sooner and get my diamonds? Well, <laughs> had to I didn't find anything up there. Yes, you did. We heard you found a bunch of stuff up there. I said, well, news to me, but I'm back, and I still didn't find anything. What is that, that how how news travels and uh, uh, the just the experience alone is you know the as far as you know how communication is how uh, what well, it should be a, a textbook ex- uh, study for you and how um, how things actually work in the world huh in our own lives it's here and back home in the states and how rumors are spread and how people how people you know how we are. As creatures, you know, it's it's funny the that this whole claim about uh, objectivity and how um, it is something that really is that we struggle at, and that we have to actually, you know, everyone claims to be a, tries to be or claims to be uh, objective about things, but the truth of the matter is, it takes a lot of effort and time and discipline to even become uh, closely. Objective. So most of us are regurgitating uh, rumors, lies, uh, stories from others. This goes back to the whole thing about the story is more important than the truth most of the time for in our lives. And this whole thing about imagine with your own experience, um, uh, reflecting back in in your life and saying, "Well, you know, how much do I really that I believe in is actually true." And when you see other people, uh, you know, reacting towards you and thinking, "Oh my gosh, this, there's a white devil here," you know. <laughs> you know, you know, this, you know. They've never seen, you know, they have never seen white guys before. They've been told that story all their life, and they're only five years old, and here it comes true. I'm coming in, big, bold, and for their very eyes, and they knew they were in trouble. <laughs> sure. Well, here's another thing too about this uh, your your adventure here and your research, and I I surely hope you are successful because uh, it's always good to rock the official paradigm, and um, yeah, fun, yeah. because you know because you know a lot of these things you know as far as the dates and my own personal experience um, uh, with dating although I didn't do much carbon dating um, um, I did I was involved at the different radio isotopes of what it was like and we never there was never yeah two 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 readings that were the same so a lot of it basically is based on the uh, educated guess is the best so you know that's the reason why you know one one moment it's well it's you know it's a hundred million years and the next next uh project or or paper uh, is uh you know it's well it's 60 millions, you know, there's a certain point where, you know, we're just trying to put the pieces together and we've got so little information. And it goes back to the fact that most of it, you know, really has, you know, we define any kind of fossil, but most people don't realize what a, what a, what a, what a, an exceptional thing it actually is. Um, so, or to find any kind of information about a lot of these things that we're looking for, um, there's, there's still a lot of unknowns, but we have to keep going. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask too is about uh, what is your observations about um, where these these uh, critters might be as far as uh, staying during the day, or you know where they rest and where they might you know 
rear their young. And, you know, we don't have to talk about the giant flying, flying bat, but fo- folks, you know, that's, if you look into the giant fruit bat, fruit bats of the Papua New Guinea, they get like six feet, but, um, uh, they don't, they don't fit the bill that, uh, that, uh, Paul's talking about. Uh, I was able to hold one up actually, and its wingspan was just about as far as I can spread my arms across, and I'm right at six foot. And they killed and ate the thing, and offered me some bat wing soup, and I politely uh, said, "No, I'll pass on it." And no, <laughs> they're very familiar. They'll they'll catch them. They're flying foxes, is what they have, the big ones, there, which is a type of a fruit bat. Sure. And, uh, They'll keep them as a pet for a long time. Put them on the veranda rail and feed them and fatten them up, and then they'll they're not scared of the fruit bat, fox bat, uh, because uh, many times they'll go out the next day, and if the fox bats have come around a mango tree, the fruit could be hanging 50, 60 feet in the air. Well, as the fox bat is feeding its wings, eating one piece of fruit, many times it'll knock off two, three, four other pieces of fruit. So they'll just walk around the base of the tree, pick up the fruit that was knocked off the night before. By the <laughs> so they appreciate the fox bat. Now that thing does look very prehistoric when it flies. It can it glides over you. You can see the sun almost going through the membrane of the skin, and you can imagine it being very prehistoric. I mean, that's uh, just an impressive six-foot wingspan coming over you, and sometimes it's oh. 25, 30 feet above you, so it's very, very close. Because there are hundreds of these things. In uh, the Indava, the Ropan, the Duwa, the Norwan, all the names of this creature, it just terrifies them because of the size of it, for one thing. Now, where it lives has always been a good question. Uh, the basic thought process is that it lives in caves. It could very well be because. Uh, on the island of Umboy, back in the oh, uh, 80s, 70s, 80s, be later than that, yeah, 80s, I guess, uh, there was a big earthquake on the island of Umboy. I mean, it was a massive earthquake. It destroyed every hut on the island, uh, but nobody was killed because these huts are up on stilts out of bamboo. And so the huts basically just collapsed four or five feet down onto the face of the earth. And so a lot of people got injured, but nobody got killed because of these very flexible housing structures. Nothing collapsed in them. But after that, the sightings disappeared, decreased dramatically. So the thought process is if the rope has been inside the caves on the island and the caves were uh, closed shut, did rock slides that could have killed off a lot of the population in that uh, event alone. So since then, the, the locals have said the sightings have dropped dramatically. In fact, I left uh, uh, Mark Cow is a big counselor in Ward Nine there on the island, and he uh, was going to keep track of how many times he would see it come into Mount Bell and take off, and and he only tracked it twice in one year. Uh, so that's how very rare it was even seen nowadays. On the, uh, now, there is some thought also that it does uh, just find a spot of tall grass in the daytime or in nighttime uh, will curl.
curl up and just stay in this tall grass during the daytime sleeping. That recorded. That's actually how the first sighting in 
what about uh, th- did they ever talk about any uh, outside of the wing beats so that, that this these creatures uh, you know make any screeches or noises vocal vocalizations of any tar- sort? Yeah, one guy explained sort of like a, a call they would make, but he heard it on top of his his hut one night walking. Uh, other than that, no, nothing, no screams or anything. I didn't get any or anything that you would think of it. It's, 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 uh, I guess from our own personal experience, uh, when it comes to reptiles, they really don't, do they? Uh, no, most of them. it is indeed a reptile. I mean, I don't know if avian creature myself, but uh, yeah, we want to say it came from. No, I don't know. I'm sure it makes some sort of uh, that was a call, but it was just more of a calm cooing, uh, I would call it, with anything very impressive or very aggressive sounding. Uh, um, do these folks have any interaction at all with albatrosses or anything like that? Any giant birds like that as well? Of that nature? Yeah, they're close to the ocean. Uh, a lot of times I'm out right there on the Pelago, uh, there in the Bismarck of Pelago Island and such. And so you'll see a lot of sea eagles, uh, which can have a you know six, seven foot wingspan. Both have feathers, where this uh, creature has no feathers. It's more along the lines of the flying fox. Okay. Well, it's, it's interesting, yeah. So it could still be potentially be like a uh, like a flying fox being a uh, a mammal. Also, we got to think about the fact that uh, once again, this number of one one fourth um, one fourth of uh, all known mammals are actually in the bat family. I don't know if you knew that or not, but that's, that's at least that's 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 the, that's the rumor out there. So. Um, that means that there's a, there's a high potential that even what we're talking about could be in that family, right? <laughs> well, they've talked about a megabat. You know, that might be a megabat. But uh, the descriptions can be similar except when they get to the head shape. I mean, bat would have a long beak and have a head crest on it. Many times uh, they will see a long tail, and very few bats have any type of tail except for a little stub tail. Sure. Yeah, we're all, you know, I'm open to, hey, if it's a megabat, then that would still be fun to document, you know? That'd be awesome, yeah. That'd be awesome. Love that, you know? (laughs) (laughs) There's movies there. Foot wingspan of a bat, I mean, that would be terrifying to see. (laughs) I know one thing, you got got some books in in the making. Uh, I hope that you do it. the journals and your experiences, you know. Oh, I've tried. Yeah. I'm just not a writer, and I just get down and get down. I give gives me more respect for those authors that I enjoy who can just put it down and it's so fluid. Oh, well, that is a talent. <laughs> You're not a wordsmith, huh? Um, uh, so yeah, but this, but you know, back to the bat bat thing, because instead of focusing so much on the bats, you know, there's uh, could it be something, you know, in between type of thing or, um, you know, 
there's a lot there's a lot of uh things out there that quite don't fit the uh the tree line if you will the evolutionary tr- uh tree uh, so you know it could be something you know it of its own its own making you know uh a subspecies or or uh, something uh right off the branch you know the right off the tree has its own evolutionary line so or it could be, you know, a mixture of maybe mammal and reptilian or whatever, having different characteristics. I mean, we're talking about something that, that this bio, you know, has a bioluminescence to it, and so it's not going to, it's not going to fit, it's not going to fit in the, um, it's not going to fit in the tree at all. You know what I mean? <laughs> and that's, you know, probably the reason why this particular creature has just been, uh, you know. The impression is that it's been around for thousands, maybe millions of years. So it's a it, it's a um, a survivor, you know, and uh, it's something to actually be reckoned with. And I find that fascinating. That no one, you don't get as much help and, and, and uh, as you should, and folks like you. So, and this is my impression, and and just my lack of understanding of this, the research of this particular creature, but. It seems to me that uh, this is uh, this should be. That we are in such an instantaneous information age that research is just hard to find. So All right. I've made three trips over there. Well, roughly each trip probably cost ten thousand dollars for them. No, and three trips out of four were totally fruitless. I get a lot of information, but no evidence. And finally, one trip, I get some graphic evidence. That's a little bit, but uh, I go back to the same spot and uh, spend the same amount of money and come up empty-handed, you know. So it's just hard for people to keep funding the black hole. So unless it's really a, 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 a dear and dear subject of yourself, it's hard to keep giving money without seeing any type of return. Well, right, so now, you know, you have you doing pretty good actually. You're talking about four trips, you know, only a month. That's four months to get a you know some information on the fourth one. That's pretty good odds. So most people understand what it takes to actually gather the kind of information that you need to gather. You know uh, that's fascinating. It's, uh, you know, if, if that cameras like that, you know, there's going to be uh, 
zero excuse as far as you know uh, the Bigfoot community, the the footers out there, as far as uh, not having some solid information. So I don't yeah, know. You also got to have something in that lens finder to to photograph. You know that thing in the right place at the right time to take that picture, to take that video. And you got to be on the field. You got to have boots on the ground to do it. You know. That's right. You know, I've been talking to folks uh, from your neck of the woods in particular, um, in Oklahoma, southern Oklahoma, northern Texas, around the river, Red River, yep. that kind of region. And, you know, they're, the, the, the reports and what they're saying, I mean, you guys are just riddled with some kind of weird, weird thing. I don't know if it's just, you know, a, a tradition of putting masks out there, because it's always usually just heads. Um, or just the, the trick of the eyes that's, you know, figuring out, the, you know, it's funny what you can see in, in a clump of trees. It is. It is exactly that. <laughs> your imagination takes off and that fear factor kicks in and you can't see good enough. It's, I quit watching horror movies when I started going to New Guinea. <laughs> like anything like that, I don't want it in my mind because when I'm out there by myself, I mean, I do most of my research totally alone out there. Now, the village is, you know, maybe five minutes away, ten minutes away. I have some locals that will camp down closer to me, you know, buy that gold or that diamond. So they came with me out there the night before. But all night long, you know, I know, hey, if I get hurt out here, it could be a week, literally, before I can get to this clear facility. I mean, there is nothing fast. I don't want any of those old images coming back and getting into my mind. So I just learned that the mind is a powerful machine. So I just say, okay, I don't need that type of garbage in there. So I'm just quick so that I can handle the the real life a lot better out there. And it's been successful in that route. Yeah. Stay away from television. It's been five and a half years. I can honestly say me and my son, I've never watched a moment of television, and I don't feel bad about that. You know, I was raised on television, and, you know, my parents were doing the best that they could, that they understood, but, you know, there's enough evidence now that uh, also the, you know, the mindless propaganda out there and the public relations nightmare of buying everything under the sun that you don't need uh, is just, uh, you know, you're not going to learn much of anything. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, and I'm I'm trying to be really generous for here. You know, you know, uh, whatever you're going to learn, it, it's just like you're talking about movies and all that is the, the images and nightmares of somebody else. And a lot of it is, you know, um, culture creating uh, forms of mind control and et cetera. So, you know, I think, you know, what's interesting, what you're experiencing, too, what you're bringing up is this journey of spending a month of large portions of time Particularly by you yourself, and you're being connected to um, uh, the world, you know, the earth, and uh, your own mind. So, you know, that in itself is an amazing, um, like a rite of passage uh, that you're having. And um, um, my hat's off to you to even go through that, because most people, you know, let's be honest, they have, we haven't been conditioned or taught how to live with our minds. Oh, so yeah, that's very, very true. And you get out there and you really, and 
people want to know how I can do it physically. I know the physical part is easy. It's the mental part that really can. can I watch these reality shows that these people, you know, try to survive on an island for a while. And I think it's mental. I mean, the physical is there too, but it's the mental. If you can get your mind in control and your mind can overcome a lot of your obstacles, that is, I would say, 90% of the battle Right, and just you know how that may uh, how that affects your research, and uh, um, I can imagine a lot of folks, you know, getting you know real distracted as far as you know not staying focused on on task, and that's you know get, gathering as much information as you can about this and well, Dava. I've enjoyed going solo, basically, or one trip my son. First trip we had eight of us, and there's just a lot of egos. Research and egos are hard to combine because one person wants to, hey, let's go here, let's do this. Well, sometimes research just means sitting silent and quiet for days. Let the jungle come back into its normal state because when we walk through it, we disturb flora and fauna. I have gone through some deep, deep rainforest and not seen a living critter at all. You know, and you think, how come? I mean, this is teeming with life. Only what I can get my locals to disappear, go back to the village, and let myself get quiet and sit and not make a movement for hours. And then I start seeing birds come out. Then I can start seeing some couscous. Then I can start seeing some activity. But, uh, I've learned that for a long time now, that uh, I get into the jungle, I mean, we disturb by our very presence on so much of the activity that uh, it takes a long time for it to come back to normalcy. So, again, that's boring. A lot of people, hey, let's go see something. Let's go do something. Let's go, 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 because we've only got a month here. We need to make the best of our time. Yes, that's always the case, but by the same token, we're going to miss some things because we are in such a hurry that we can walk right past it because it's frozen, whatever it is, until it realizes that it's, it's time that uh, everything returns to the normal seat and it can come back and do its normal uh, business. And then we make a discovery. You got me on the soapbox there. No, I think it's a very, an extremely important issue. Uh, that it, not only is you know, when you're talking about your own personal research, uh, but in life in general, I discovered, you know, we're in such a rushed and conditioned pace, you know, to be rushed and see as much as possible. You got to see this, that, the other, you know, this site, that site, experience this. Well, we, we, you know, the truth is, if you really want to be more con- connected to uh, your reality, you need to stop. I always tell folks, if you really want to start understanding your world, Spend some time out in your front porch and just look around. Don't go anywhere. Just just stand there. Just, just sit there. Just observe. And, and then before you even think about uh, going out in the woods, because that's exactly what is required for you to see anything, you know. Um, you know, is just think of, think of yourself as being a deer hunter or something like that without the gun. 
<laughs> or in my case, a turkey hunter. I mean, turkeys are so much harder to hunt than deer. So just you just got to be quiet, and that takes so hard to do because you're out there and people have supported you, and you want to make the best use. You want to come back with the prize, and you want to do this, and you want to have this. And that's why now, like I said, I've been the last two trips have been solo, and they've been so much more beneficial because, you know, I can set a slow pace and let the locals, the nationals here, start to get used to my presence. They leave you alone. And otherwise, I've walked through the jungle pass with 40 people trucking with me. Talk about my posse. I mean, and you can't get rid of that posse. You can try to fake, I try to fake going to take a nap for two hours. Well, let's just sit right there and wait and watch you sleep for two hours. You're no hurry, and you just can't get rid of them. You have to accept that and say, okay, once they get used to this unusual person in their presence, and I'm no longer that special, unusual person, they'll drift off and go back into their normal way of life. And that can take a day, two, three, four days to finally get used to my presence, and then things can come back to normalcy. It's an extremely slow process. Right. They're not up all night long. They'll be up till two or three in the morning sometimes. But <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you one thing. Regardless of whether you think you're a good writer or not, I sure hope that you do do the journal, do a small book, because of all the life lessons that you're going to offer, and um, that's so much more significant than the bird itself. I hope you you see that, and I see that, and I'm very envious. I wish I could be in that experience. I I know you say, Mike, well, you really don't know what you're wishing for with having a half a dozen strangers, strange faces staring at you, waiting for your next move. But that in itself uh, is such a, a unique life experience that has to be shared to the rest of the world. I mean, there's. There's a movie there, but gosh, you know what I mean? <laughs> you know, why are you staring at me? Leave me alone, you. <laughs> you know, the good ghost rider I can get hired or something. Yeah. Well, I thank you for the compliments, but I don't know. Like I say, just, I would love to, but uh, I've just realized my own limitations now, so I've got to keep on going. Well. Yes. Well, uh, what a wonderful uh, conversation. Uh, I, I would love to talk to you a couple more times just about the whole picture, the whole holistic picture um, of your journey and your experience because, you know, as I said, it was self-evident. There's not very much out there in the, in the Internet world, first of all, about you and your experience. Um, um, but, you know, to me it's like, how can you people not see what this guy, what this gentleman, Paul Nation, is going through? Yeah, you could judge him and say whatever his motives are. It doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is, you are going to Papua New Guinea. You're hanging out with these these people. You're um, either the white devil or the white god. You're, you're all these things that, you know, is. It makes me think of. Uh, oh gosh, what was the movie about the um, the Vietnam War with? Uh, uh, Apocalypse Now, as it was, and um, you know the journey there. 
uh, but you know, are all these other, you know, this all the things that, um, I mean, you're experiencing basically what, uh, uh, in, in a lot of ways, it's not quite the same, but you know, let's think about like the early settlers of North America and being an, interacting with, uh, the native Americans or in South America or all the other places. Oh, and you, you never hear much about that experience. You only hear about the, the, you know what the official narrative is. You know, to you know, to, you know. Yeah, most people aren't interested in that. You get on the internet, and they, they just want to know what can I learn in the next thirty seconds. You know, okay, that's too long, way too long, way too long. <laughs> yeah, but how many guys? How many people have had the opportunity you've had to say, well, listen, you know, this is what I was doing. I got malaria, and I got, you know. Uh, foot rot and all this other stuff, and I was hanging out with these people that were eating, you know, offering me up giant fruit bats and uh, staring at me and uh, the kill communication thing and uh, and the whole thing about you're yearning to do the research and the necessity of actually being left alone and yet <laughs> no matter where you know in this in, in our culture it's like everybody is just more than eager to leave you alone. You know what I mean? But. <laughs> Well, it, it, if you look at like uh, like the Beatles and all that we were talking about, and how, how this culture creation, the, the connections with the Tavistock Institute and and other think tanks, and you know a lot of this stuff that we witnessed on television and these things like the rock star, you know, this they were their these creations and social experiments. It wasn't based on their great talent. And not hardly at all, because you and I all know greater musicians that no one ever heard of, probably in your own town you've met. Um, So, you know, the the fact of the matter is that's what they were doing and how, you know, we think that we're so much different than these tribal people in Papua New Guinea, but are we? Hardly. The only thing that's different is that, you know, that we live in concrete jungles. And so I think it's just that, I guess the anthropological aspects of the whole thing, because, you know, the creature itself is fascinating in the quest. They've defined it. That's, the human experience is the, um, the journey. It's the, the hunt that's, um, that's, you know, ingrained into us. Um, that's such an important, that's important, that's important message that, um, with this synthetic, um, you know, uh, internet world that so many, you know, most children are playing their video games and 
and never going to even have that real experience. I mean, their, their experience of the hunt now is a video game and seeing how many levels you can get to through, you know, and if you can play the game for, you know, and it's the same way, except that you're, you're still, you're doing something that's still connected to, um, well, with the reality, you know, yeah. so anyways, you know, let's do this again sometime and good luck with uh, raising money. Anybody that's, you know, spends, spends some money, uh, um, falls away and help him with his journey and, and I hope that the, whoever listens to this, I can recognize and see the importance of what Fall is doing, which is way beyond, you know, what most people are thinking. So it's okay. just, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and can you, uh, any other ways that people can reach out to you? Please, please uh, share with them. No, not really. I uh, used to try to have a, a big internet presence, but. I more or less pull back and just say, you know, it's going to take a special person and special one time. And there's just so many people out there that just want information, 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 information that uh, it wears you out at times. And so I've got that website, com. They can talk to me through that if they'd like to. I'm more or less low-key now and just say it's, uh, I've had some, Reality shows approach me, and I've done one with Monster Quest in a way. But again, they just want to rush over there, do a quick four or five day expedition, take some good footage of the environment, and then let's rush back home. And we don't care if we find anything or not. We just want to get some good word clips and some good statement clips and some good, you know, video clips and put a show on. And so, you know, I've done that before. I'm more or less set back. Well, we need to do some good, solid research and research your time and money. Entertaining the profane masses—that's what it's all about, isn't it? It's a shame because. Yeah, but I like to be entertained too. I watch these Bigfoot shows. I watch these cryptozoology shows. You know, and I understand that. I mean, I'm I'm like the same way. I'll get on YouTube and okay, that's enough of this one. I've watched it for four or five minutes. I want to go to the meat of it. You know, so. I can understand that. Once I find something that I can put it in a condensed mode, but the research cannot be condensed. I mean, the research has to be done step by step, and unless you accidentally get stumbled into an opportunity, you know, of a lifetime, and that happens, but you still got to be usually in the field for those opportunities to bypass boots in the ground, you know, and that's a lot of hard. Things don't just appear a lot of times. I've spent, what, 20 some odd years researching this thing. It's time for somebody else to take up. And there's more people. There's about eight people I know that have are been out there looking for it. It's going to take many more people before we actually get some good definitive answers. Yeah. Well, but yeah, just, just looking at the terrain that you're going to have to deal with in Papua New Guinea and the High Garden and all that stuff and the Earth. And east of it, and I just like it. You know, that's a lot of turf. That's a lot of terrain, and uh, um. Well, that's why I have to rely on a lot of the locals to say, you know, where can I go to get the best views, and where can I go that maybe has the best, you know, potential of seeing something. And they live in that area, and they're the ones that are going to have the uh, accidental exposure. 
quick enough and find the, the eyewitness who actually saw it. Yep, mm. you're right. It's extremely, it's got a good place to hide, and there's no problem with it remaining hidden for another 150 years or whatever. Desires to. Yeah, and and from you know uh, what we experienced around us, you know, large creatures like this, you know, the elephant, the whale, um, you name it, they have to have a, a high sense of intelligence. And I mean, look how long it took. To, look, look how long it took them to find a you know the gorilla and and uh, <laughs> or to find this. Nineteen uh, ten or something like that. Yeah, but how long did it, did it actually you know per. Um, and we're always talking now about our uh, European ethnocentric point of view. So, sure. so we're saying we find it. We're talking about well, Western Westerners find it. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? They've experienced it, and a lot of them don't care to experience it again. <laughs> yes, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. All right. Well, Paul. Paul, thank you for sharing a morning with me. And oh, anytime, anytime. Holler at me again sometime, and let's see what we can put together. And like I say, I just enjoy sharing, and uh, it's been quite unique in that uh, we really didn't discuss a whole lot about the creature itself, but I enjoy, like you said, the anthropological aspects of it and the life aspects of it. So I appreciate you bringing that out. Well, you know, I understand your 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 position and where your dilemma is, and and so it's not it's like how much, like you said, you know, it's like. How many times do I have to go over the same old, same old? And this is what I know, and this is what I don't know. And it's uh, the reason why we're wherever we're at, because there's not enough research and boots on the ground. Come on, help. <laughs> so I hope, I sure hope so. I hope, I hope the right ear hears this this show and says, you know, I'm going to help this gentleman and help him to have, uh, you know, maybe trip five is the answer, you know. It could be another you know, because trip, trip 50, that's the problem with all this is that, uh, you know, they're not, they're not supposed to, they're, they're not waiting for a, a photo op. You know what I mean? They haven't signed any contracts. So. Right. <laughs> that means they've got to leave the area to go to another area. So. This, this, this logic. So much. All right, Paul, you take care. And I'll, I will send you a copy of, uh, the recording, folks, you can hear it on TalkShoe.com and also uh, find it in uh, YouTube. The YouTube channel, uh, All Religion Dystopia, Knowing versus Beliefs. So. All right, Paul. Just stay on. I'm just going to hang up the sh- on the show part, okay? Okay. Thank All you. Right. All right. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.